Thank you so much, brother. Can we get an amen for that message that we just heard? I would say that we could just stop with that and go, but I'm afraid you're all going to get up and leave, and I've already told my parents I'm speaking tonight. I was born in Tennessee. I live in Alabama. I like me some Bama football, but I grew up in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. If you cut my arm, blue blood comes out. No offense, Hilltopper fans. I grew up coming into this area to football games, and really when I was in this area, I was usually running. We used to come up here to the Western Kentucky Relays. It ran over there in the stadium. And used to come up here for 5K races. They used to have a Wendy's 10K Classic where I could run with Olympic athletes. And no, I wasn't anywhere near them. I only saw them at the end when they put them on the victory stand. <laughs> Kentucky helped shape who I am. I preached the gospel because of little churches and Big Clifty and Big Reedy and Hill Grove and Lebanon Junction. Brethren like you and congregations all across Tennessee, let a kid talk about Jesus. And no matter how bad the lesson was, they'd pat my back and say, good job. Many times I've told young preachers, I've training, don't let it, training, I said, don't let the, the kind words at the back go to your head. They feel contractually obligated to make you feel better. but because they saw something when nothing was there. I'm able to be here. Thank you for believing in boys like me. I don't know where you get your news from, but for me, typically what I will do to get my news is I go every day on my phone to the Fox News website. And I'll just peruse through what's going on in the news. In fact, when I'm preparing a lesson, often as I'm thinking about how do we illustrate that, I, I go and look at what's going on in the news. As I thought about what we're talking about tonight, I said, I, I'm just going to pick a day, and I just want to see what's there. So I don't know if you can see the picture on the screen. Some of you may be listening to this. So let me just read some of these titles for you. These are ten random stories in one perusing in one day. In other words, I didn't go back and forth five or six times over five days. I looked once. Teen charged in a shooting of three. Third suspect arrested in deadly mass shooting. Father of woman who was shot for pulling in the wrong driveway. Hopes that the shooter will die in jail. George Clooney rips Johnny Depp and Mark Wahlberg for denying Schools near Las Vegas pressured to disclose information on a cop who slammed a black student. Man accused of choking, trying to rip a woman's bathing suit off at a public beach. You've got a political scandal in there. You've got a tourist that's attacked over a cigarette. You've got a young boy that's shot for being just simply by accident at the wrong house. You've got political parties attacking each other. Is what we're talking tonight about relevant? You know, as I think about those stories, one of the things I found in common is selfishness. Now, depending on the story, you can decide who you think is selfish, but I found in every one of those stories, somebody thought of self and what self wanted before they thought about what somebody else 
wanted, or needed. We've been asked to talk about service in a world full of selfishness, and we've been assigned Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The book of Philippians is about a prison break. It's a book written by a guy in prison to a community where he used to be in prison, to a congregation that has a jailer that he converted when they were at the jail together. And it's a book about how to get out of prison without ever leaving your cell. Because you don't have to exit in your body. You can exit in your mind. How do you exit a cell without ever leaving? It's all about attitude. Attitude determines altitude, and you have that ringing sound. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Paul had this amazing ability to step outside of his circumstances in his mind. And so in this book, you've got the guy in prison trying to cheer up the folks out of prison. And he says to them, it's all about attitude. And so he starts off with his own attitude about his own imprisonment. In chapter 4, he's going to talk about wrong wrong attitudes. In chapter 5, he's going to talk about an attitude adjustment because we have Christ. And if we focus on the right things and turn things over to God, we can have hope and joy and rejoicing and contentment even in a prison cell. But in chapter 2, he tells us how we get there as he talks about the attitude of Christ. So if you've got your Bibles, let's just start off by reading the first four verses. I want us to walk through verse 13 because all of this ties together. But let us just read verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ... If there is any consolation in love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but look for the interest of others. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You've got a series of if-then statements in which he is assuming that they will agree with the first half of the clause, first half of the phrase. If this is true, then this is what I'm asking. So imagine, if you will, as you think of us being here tonight, if we're in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and if we're at Lehman Avenue, and if this is the Equip Conference, and if this is a 715 session, then Kirk Brothers is talking about serving in a selfish world based on Philippians 2. If the first four are not true, the others aren't correct. 
So he's assuming that his audience believes there's encouragement, there's consolation, there's love, there's affection that we have in Christ Jesus, in our relationship with Jesus, and in the relationships we have in Jesus Christ. Because one of the beautiful things that happens when we become Christians is that Jesus does not just give us salvation. He gives us saved people to share life with. One of the beautiful things about the moment 35 years ago when I said I do to Cindy Brothers is that from that moment forward, I don't have to face life alone. And one of the beautiful things about that decision many years as a boy at the Elizabethtown Congregation in E-Town, Kentucky, on a Friday night when Earl West was doing a gospel meeting, when I expressed my faith in Jesus Christ and I was baptized into Christ, from that moment forward, I never had to face life alone. From that moment forward, no matter what I dealt with, I had consolation, I had affection, had love, I had a family. He's assuming they know what they have in Christ. But something struck me in preparing for this lesson I had never thought about before. If he was preaching tonight, would he assume that we would believe it? Because as I look around me, I see folks that aren't happy with what they have. A world where the grass is always greener on the other side. I see nitpicking and fault-finding and complaining. You don't do enough for me, so I'll go somewhere else that will. I find myself wondering, could Paul assume that we believe we have beautiful things in the church? If we did, why are they having to beg us to come and gather together? If we really believed that there was affection and consolation and encouragement... Paul was able to say what he said because he assumed they understood the blessings they had in Christ and in his church. And if these blessings come, not just because of Jesus, but because of the loving relationships we have in Christ, then he says, what I want you to do is I want you to have the same mind. I want you to have the same love. I want you to have the same purpose. Because those things are intertwined. Now, those in our class this morning, if you've been around me, I, I hang out with bees. I have found that sometimes bee stings aren't as painful as people stings. When I'm looking at a frame, I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to, they call it reading the frame. You learn a lot about what's going on in a colony by reading the frame. So I've got a picture of one of my frames on the screen. And what I'd like you to do, hopefully you can see it a little bit. Can, can you find the queen? There's a queen on this frame. Now, she's not easy to see. She's a young queen. She hasn't even probably been on her mating flight yet. So she's smaller. In fact, there's some drone bees that later will be smaller than her that right now are a pinch larger than her. If you find her, just raise a hand. Now let me give you some hints, even though she's not a lot bigger. Her abdomen will be a little more caramel colored and have a little less striping. And her thorax, her back, where all the other bees will have little hairs on it, hers 
is smoother and shinier. Has anybody found her yet? Y'all may have to advance that one. Can you see her now? There have been times, usually I video it when I'm in there. Sometimes I'll put it on YouTube. But a lot of times we video because then we can track later what happened over time to keep up with what's going on in the hive and changes and when we did things. And there have been times when I was looking through a large hive for a queen. I never found her, but when I went back and watched my videos, she was two inches from my thumb. But I missed her because I was looking for something else. You see, what I find depends on knowing what I'm looking for and keeping my focus on what I'm looking for. If I get diverted, oh, look at that one. She's doing a waggle dance. Where'd the queen go? I say that to say this. Paul says if we're going to be one mind, if we're going to be one in love and purpose, we've got to focus on the right things. And he says, it doesn't come from looking for myself. It doesn't come from selfishness, focusing on what I want, on what I need. He says, a oneness of mine comes from having a humility of mine in which my focus is on what others need. In fact, my focus is on what God wants and on what others need instead of what I want. I think about a conversation I had once upon a time. God has allowed me to teach students at three of our brotherhood schools. I thank God for that. I think about a conversation. Most of those that I have taught have been members of the churches of Christ. But I think of one student that I had in the class who was a part of an instrumental group. And in the email, the student made the observation to me that it broke his heart that instrumental and non-instrumental congregations are divided. And I thought about it for a moment. I prayed about it for a moment. You know, when you get that email, you're thinking, How, what do I say back? Do I just say, me too, and leave it? Well, as a teacher, you can't let teachable moments walk away. So when I wrote him back, I said, it breaks my heart too. But I said, here's the reality. They're never going to be able to worship with your congregation as long as there's an instrument. For them, it's sin. Because we don't see it in God's Word. And what you've got to decide is what's more important, an instrument or fellowship. You've got to figure out what you want. You see, a lot of times we say, I want unity, but what we mean is I want you to change and I want God to change so I can be and do what I want. And what Paul says, focus first on what God wants, focus on what the other needs and wants, and then act from there. I don't know about you, but did, when I was in elementary school, we had that alphabet list. Did anybody have that above the chalkboard? Any of the young people in the room, if you'll get on Wikipedia and type in chalkboard, they'll show you a picture. <laughs> but above the chalkboard, you had the letters. And something else people don't know anymore is cursive. They don't teach that anymore. When I send thank you notes 
I have to go print when I'm getting to a certain age. If I do cursive, they don't know what I've said. But I remember it. It had uppercase, lowercase print, and then it had cursive. And then what your teacher would have you do is you'd pull out your, your tablet, and what would you do? You would copy the letters above the board. One time I was in college, in one of my Greek textbooks, it had a picture, Hiram, of an ancient Greek tablet. And so it's, it's a clay tablet where the teacher had etched the Greek letters and a student had etched them under. And I thought, man, I thought this was new. I say that because what Paul does is he, starting in verse 5, Paul gives us something above the chalkboard. He says, to have oneness of mind, we've got to have a humility of mind. Let me display what a humility of mind looks like. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This way of thinking, this disposition, this world view. Said, have the world view, the disposition, the way of thinking of Jesus. If I'm going to have a oneness of mind among God's people, then all of the individual Christians need to have a humility of mind. And to develop a humility of mind, I've got to learn to think like Jesus. And what he's going to stress is it goes beyond thinking like Jesus to living like Jesus. And then he's going to describe what thinking and living like Jesus looks like. He said, although he existed in the form of God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Without him was nothing made that was made. He's a creator of the world, compare Colossians chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. He is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus not made in the image of God, he is the exact representation of the Father. He is divine. Yet, it says, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. <coughs> I remember growing up with my King James, it said, he thought it not robbery. The idea is to cling to something. I want you to think about it. If a thief was going to take something out of your hand, what would you hold on to and what would you let go of? If your wallet's in your hand, are you holding on or letting go? If it's your iPad, are you holding on or letting go? If it's a ticket to your favorite team ball game in the national championship, are you holding on to it or letting it go? If it's my daughter's hand, am I holding on or letting go? You're going to have to rip my arm off. You learn a lot about a person based on what they hold on to and what they let go. He thought it not robbery. He thought grasping, clinging, hanging on to. In other words, he was willing to release something that was his, that he had a right to. Why? Well, let's see why. It says he did not cling to it, but emptied himself. Well, what, what does it mean that he emptied himself? 
Did he empty himself of being God? Did he stop being divine? Did he stop being God? Well, it doesn't seem so based on Scripture. Isn't it in Matthew chapter 1, he'll be called Emmanuel, which means he who used to be God with us? The text says what? God with us. Well, can he be God with us if he's no longer God when he's with us? I think about John chapter 20 and verse 28. You know that famous encounter with the guy we call what? Doubting Thomas. Isn't it fascinating that one of the greatest statements of faith in Jesus in the whole Bible is the guy we named the doubter, my Lord and my God. In John chapter 9, when he healed that blind man, and that blind man came to realize who he was, he worshipped him. He is unworthy of worship if he's not God. He's sinning if he's not God by allowing that man to worship him. So, as I look at Scripture... The one who called himself the I Am didn't stop being God. So that can't be what he emptied himself of. He didn't give up his divine essence. He didn't give up that position. But he gave up something, it seems, of his power, his place in heaven. And yea, even his knowledge. And you may, that may bother you. But have you thought about Luke 2.52 lately? He increased in what? Wisdom. Would you have ever said that about the divine logos? The word that became flesh? Would you ever have said the divine eternal God the Son needed to increase in wisdom? No, but you did when he became a human being. When he came into the world when he was 10 seconds old, he didn't know calculus. He had to increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So he didn't stop being God. He didn't give up divine personhood and position. He gave up privilege and power and place. And that was expressed in his becoming a human being. Though in the form of God, he took on the form of a man, and in the likeness of a man, he did some things and made some choices. And interestingly, as you think of those words, form and likeness, you have two words that are often used interchangeably, but in this context, it kind of looks like he's contrasting them just a little bit. And it seems that what he's saying is, is that in his essence, in his form, he... He does not stop being God. But in his outer likeness, in his outer appearance, he took on the form and shape of a human being. Though defined, he became fully a human being and experienced life like we do. John 1, he became flesh. Acts chapter 17, the one who judges us was a Man, Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 4, it, it seems to teach that he had to be a man to be qualified to be the high priest because he had to understand those for whom he was a high priest. To be tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. 
So when he emptied himself, he fully became a human being. He never stopped being divine God. But he truly lives life the way I live my life. Well, the way I should have lived my life. I want us to think then about what he chose to do in that form. The way I try to wrestle with my own mind, I don't know about you, I try to, I, I think of illustrations that make sense to me, and that becomes the illustrations I share in my lessons. Because I've got to figure it out in my own mind first, and I know y'all do that as you're studying. So as I'm trying to wrestle with these different likenesses and forms, I think about a butterfly. The caterpillar, the pupa, and the butterfly are all the same creature. They're all the same creature in different forms. The eternal Logos and the man we knew as Jesus are the same being. Now, can I reduce understanding divine human in Jesus by a simple butterfly illustration? No. But it's the closest my feeble mind can get. And what's interesting, if I carry few through with the analogy, he didn't go from a caterpillar to a butterfly. He went in the opposite direction. He emptied himself and humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, why does he say that? Well, what did he say in verse 3 needed to happen before we could have oneness? We needed humility of mind. And then he says to be of a humble mind, he says, think like Jesus. He said, how does Jesus think? Jesus thinks with a humble attitude. And he showed his humility and his obedience by not being faithful up to death, but by being faithful in death. His death on the cross was the ultimate illustration of the humility and obedience and sacrificial spirit, the servant-mindedness in his heart. I want you to think about it. He made this, but he chose this. That is what serving in a selfless world looks like. When I was in high school, we had some habits and some trends. I'm sure you have things you remember. I ran into three of the guys from college today. No, they are not allowed to tell you anything, and I will not share secrets either. If you look on this, what you've got here is a picture of the desktop on my computer. No cracks, Neil, about all the files around the edge. But it's a picture of a piece of paper that is actually framed in my office. It's a piece of paper from when I was in high school over 30 years ago. When I was in high school, we would do the, they called them the senior superlatives, the most whatever, the best smile, the best athlete, the prettiest, the most likely to succeed, and on and on you could go. Another tradition we had in high school was putting pieces of paper on each other's back. Does anybody here remember those days? Your buddy pats you on the back. 
you did a great job in the race yesterday. They didn't even see the race. What they were doing was put a piece of paper on your back that says, I need a date for the prom. At the end of the year, we had the senior spaghetti supper. What did we do? We sat around as seniors and ate spaghetti. We were real good with names back then. And part of the thing was to make fun of each other. So what you would do, because, you know, it's the right thing to not let awards go to each other's heads. So you would call out, I mean, we already kind of know who had done them, but then that was the time to make fun of them. And so they'd call out, so-and-so won this, and they'd walk up, and they'd make them do something funny or wear something. And I, I can remember when they called Bethany Messenger and I up there, we had to wear a sign the rest of the night. And my sign said, I want to be a garbage man. It's my computer desktop, and it's framed in my office. Because it became a guiding beacon, a compass for me in my life. You see, they wanted us to wear it because to them that was not success. I kept it for many years first just because it was from the day. But I also kept it as a reminder to never look down on anybody that does an honest day's work. If you wake up every day and does so, do something that is honest, that contributes to the world, you are a success. But then it took on a different meaning. As I was reading through the book of Luke, I began to notice how many people Jesus interacted with that were looked down on in their culture. And it suddenly hit me. My Savior was a garbage man. Oh, don't talk to those children. You don't have time for that blind man. The women, they're not important. And just like the garbage collector rolls down the street and collects what nobody wants. Jesus walked the streets of Palestine and took the people that nobody wanted. Not to haul away, to throw them away, but because to him they were not trash, they were treasures. People to save, lives to change. He's not going to just heal a leper, he's going to touch the leper. Because the healing fixes the outside, the touch heal is the inside. In a world filled with selfishness, I saw a Savior serving. And the ultimate example of that was on a cross. And so Paul says, because he lowered himself, because he served, God exalted him and gave him a name above every name, that he would be called Lord, that all would bow down to him and lift him up. And I couldn't help but think of those at the foot of the cross who mocked him, who spat upon him, who put nails in him, who would someday bow at his feet. He chose to serve and became honored. You can be honored by being selfish, and I, you and I can be honored by being a servant. One's temporary, and the other results in return, eternal reward. He goes then from talking about the mind of Christ to saying, okay, it's time to change your mind. I know... 
Hiram's a Florida boy. So I think about me being a Kentucky boy. My favorite band's from Florida. I don't know if anybody here has heard of a group called Sister Hazel. But they've got a song called Change Your Mind. And it says, if you want to be somebody else, if you're tired of fighting battles with yourself, if you want to be somebody else, change your mind. Because once you change your brain, it changes how you live your life. And what Paul wants them to do is to change their minds. Not just know what Jesus did, start thinking like him, but then start living like him. This is where, this section, verse 12, is where Philippians starts echoing James with his emphasis on practicality and living out your faith. He says, okay, we've talked about being one. Now here, I'm asking you to get busy doing it. He says, as you have obeyed. You've had a habit of obeying in the past. Now I want you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling as God is already working in you. The tenses here are really, really important. Obeyed is past tense, but in the context, it's past tense, a repeated thing. They've obeyed in the past over and over. But then you have this present tense, active imperative. It's a command. He says, you've obeyed in the past. I'm commanding you now to be in the process of working out your salvation. And then you have another present tense in relation to the working of God because God's already working in you. And so I want you to think about the context of all that's happening here. Jesus has worked to save us. That's what he's just talked about in verses 5 through 8. And God is working in us as saved people. Now he's calling on them to join in the work. Now, we're not working to save ourselves. As I read him working out your own salvation, my mind hears, make sure your salvation is working. God worked to give it to you. Make sure it's living and active. Okay, Paul, what does a lived out salvation look like? What does it look like to work out my own salvation? He says in verse 14, it is living without grumbling and disputing. It's being blameless and innocent. That word innocent, it, it has the idea of being unmixed, pure. I don't say one thing and do something else. I don't act like something on the outside and I'm something different on the inside and vice versa. And he's saying that blamelessness and innocence and being above reproach that is consistent with living my life without grumbling and disputing. Remember, he began the section saying, be of one mind. He then ends the section by saying, don't be grumbling and divisive. Lived out faith means that I don't divide and tear apart, but I humbly serve and unite and bring people together. And so if we're going to have a humility of mind that gives us a oneness of mind, then we're going to have to have the Savior's mind and we're going to have to start living it in our lives. We are going to have to learn to be Him if we're going to be one. And it's when we are one that we are most like Him. And then we shine as lights in the world. On November the 2nd, 
1950 and what they thought were the latter days of the Korean conflict. U.S. forces were making deep incursions into northern Korea and it seemed that the end of the conflict was close at hand. Then suddenly, communist forces were inserted into the fight. And 20,000 Chinese soldiers began to attack U.S. troops. One battalion found themselves surrounded by an overwhelming army. On November the 2nd, you had Sergeant Herbert Miller, who lay in a ditch because his ankle was shattered from a grenade. A communist soldier walked up to him, pointed a rifle at his head. He started closing his eyes, accepting the inevitable. But right before his eyes closed, he saw a man running towards them. It was a chaplain whom he had never seen before. And this U.S. Army chaplain came running up to them, literally grabbed the rifle of the communist soldier, pushed it out of the way, and picked up Sergeant Miller while the soldier is just standing there shocked and took him away. As forces closed in, Chaplain Emil Capon had opportunities to get away, but he refused to leave the wounded. And so he would drag them out of harm's way. If he couldn't move them, he would dig shallow trenches that he would put them in to protect them from gunfire. He ran back and forth from foxhole to foxhole, encouraging, praying, uplifting, comforting the wounded, until finally they were encircled. And a forced march ensued for much of the journey to the concentration camp, to the prisoner of war camp. He carried Sergeant Miller because he knew if Miller fell behind, he was going to be executed. When they got to the camp, the journey there and the encampment was bitterly cold. They had very little to keep them warm. They were starving to death. So he would sneak out at night to neighboring encampments and farms, and he would steal food and bring it back to the soldiers. The chaplain got the nickname of the good thief. Because of it, he was made to stand out in bitter cold with no clothing on. He traded a watch that he had, his last possession, for a blanket so he could make socks for the soldiers who did not have blankets. He prayed, he encouraged, he strengthened. And then his body began to break down. They were moving him to the hospital. The other soldiers called the hospital at the camp the death house. As he was getting ready to go, one of the other soldiers pleaded with him, No, no, please, don't go, don't go with them. And Emil Capon said, I am going where I've wanted to go my whole life. And when I get there, I'll pray for you. May 23, 1951, he died in the death house. When that camp was liberated, they walked out 
with a homemade cross to honor the chaplain who died to keep them alive. In 2013, President Obama honored him with a Medal of Honor. In the audience, there were nine men whose lives he had saved. In a world where literally in selfishness, people were taking each other's lives, there was a beacon of service and kindness and humility. On a cross, on a hill called Calvary, surrounded by selfishness and jealousy and greed. There was a light shining in the darkness, a shining eternal example of service and goodness and love in the middle of darkness and ugliness. Our world still has that ugliness. The question is, are there any shining lights left? As I look at my life, is my light, my service, a light in the darkness? Or has my selfishness only intensified the darkness? The world still needs some serving lights on the hill. May we go forth as little Jesuses. His presence, his embodiment in people's lives, showing them there's a different way to live this life God gave us. Thank you for your attention.